0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett. Every Tuesday from 4 to 6pm, followed by Done By Law... And thanks, as always, to Anne McAllister with her Celtic Folk Show. This is Melbourne's Community Radio, 3CR, 8.55 on the old analogue, 3CR Digital. program can be heard for a week, streaming via 3cr.org.au, as can the podcast for weeks, also via 3cr.org.au. Halfway through winter, things are looking up. On the program today, academic and writer Binoi Campmark looking at the pardoning and release of Kathleen Folby after 20 years in jail for killing her four children. Why did it happen? And him and the other Australians have been wrongly convicted and languishing in jails. Associate Professor Tillman Ruff and the decision of the IAEA to support Japan's release of 1.3 million tonnes of radioactive contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean. What it will mean and the reaction from both the local fisher people and the nations in the Pacific. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has been in power for a year in the Philippines. Human rights activist Peter Murphy will be assessing that year and what the year ahead is likely to bring. And Jenin, once again the target of the apartheid regime in Israel. Homes, cars, health centres, lives, roads destroyed, unknown dead and injured and detained. The UN inspecting the damage, but unless it is treated like any other occupying forces, Israel will go on and do it again and again. And on and on. Well, Mr Kevin Healy, here he is with his week that was.
2: A week when we were reminded of that well-known observation. Could it be, could it just be, that one person's terrorist, one person's militant, is another person's freedom fighter? As Zion destroys a Palestinian landless non-people's refugee camp in, as it tells us, a precisely targeted, pinpoint targeted, trained killing attack which destroyed the non-people's non-land refugee camp, precisely targeting destruction of homes, roads, infrastructure, precisely targeting tear gassing a hospital, all because these terrorists, these militants live where they have no right to live live, wait for it, wait for it, in their homes. Terrorists and militants because they have the audacity to object to Zion occupying their non-land. Zion-trained killers controlling their lives, their movements, doing no more than exercising Zion's Yahweh-given right. Zion-trained killers who must, by definition, be terrorized by the terrorists. Because there's nothing terrifying about heavily armed train killers patrolling your life and deciding when they might kill you, kill your family, bulldoze your home, jail your kids for throwing stones. Imagine how that must terrify the gentle, sensitive train killers. Oh, and decide when your land now belongs to more Zion people who in turn attack you if, for some inexplicable reason, you don't support them taking your land. Because that means you're a terrorist, a militant. While the trained killers, the military, are not militant. And they know that despite the rest of the world declaring their controlling life in the non-people's non-land is illegal, it is not illegal but disputed. Not by Zion, which knows there's no dispute about it. It knows it's its land. Yahweh told them that 3,000 years ago, but disputed by the landless non-people, making them terrorists and militants who must be destroyed along with their non-land. Because obviously, if people have no land, they have no land to lose. So an occupied landless people have no right to resist. Worse Breaking Zionist law in the non land that isn't their land, and Zion supremo Benjamin not another Yahoo assures us that if they observed whatever law Zion decides is the law, like Zion people now own their land, then they could live in peace on the land they haven't got, lawless, lawless non people, although could it just be, could it just be? But one person's terrorist and militant is another person's freedom fighter, a precisely targeted freedom fighter, as precisely as Lord Rupert and Wapping readers would have learned the truth. Well, apart from day one, when the destruction and slaughter didn't warrant a line, but then day two, a comprehensive coverage, two paragraphs down the bottom of a page in the back of the book. But day three, three pass, telling us the terrorists had fired some penny buggers, or, sorry, rockets at Good Liberty, Freedom and Democracy, Love and Zion. Of course, had those penny bugger rockets caused any damage, that would have been big news up front and Lord Rupert would have informed us just how heartless these terrorists, these militants are and the unbearable suffering they impose on poor Zion. But it's not just Lord But all media go along with the Zion terminology: terrorists, militants. A military-occupied people have no right to resist. Sorry, a disputed non-people. Speaking of non-people, terra nullius non-people, caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, got into the spirit of and celebrated Nadoc week by disputing the right of caring business class high-flying exploiters or, sorry, sorry, don't know where that came from, high-flying contributors to our welfare to support and donate to The Voice. Well, one side of the voice issue, we can be sure he'd see donations support for a no-voice for nullius non-people, a great social service. It's just that Pete and the team can't get enough detail, detail, detail. As we mentioned last week, Pete is either so dumb he can't get it through what passes a ahead, or the no-lot and he are doing all they can to obfuscate and confuse a very simple issue. We did point out we would never discount the too dumb bit, but Pete said the great corporates supporting the voice were not acting, you know, like in the national interest, making it clear, therefore, that recognising there just may have been a pre-1788 history and civilisation is not in the national interest, that those supporting the contention that as non-people may not be so as nor non... Our elitists, Pete said. You know, like the philosophical quality of the uh, debate rose even higher, soared after Minister for the nullius non-people Linda Burney accused the no nullius voice people of dividing the nation, prompting an angry response from her caring business class, hay sheepshit sheep-shit counterpart that by attacking her lot for dividing the country, the government was dividing the country. See? Logic-run riot. The Nine Media Empire was forced to apologise for accepting a full-page ad in Thursday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review from the No Terror Non-People Voice campaign considered extraordinarily racist for no stronger reason than it was extraordinarily racist. Expressed by New South Wales Caring Business Class MP Matt Keane the racist trope of Thomas Mayo in the full-page ad has no place in true blue politics. It's a throwback to the Jim Crow era of the Deep South. Yet, no voice for my own people campaign leader Warren Mundine said there was nothing racist about it. It is factual, he said. Every time someone disagrees with the left, they always whinge that it's racist. We'd hate to see Warren's idea of what is racist. The mind boggles. Thomas Mayo is, of course, Yes, campaign director, a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and Assistant National Secretary of the Maritime Union. Doubly threefold dangerous. Seriously, no satire listener. The ad is disgusting. And yesterday's headline, Nine apologises After Conservative Group's Ad Draws Fire. We have to wonder why it didn't act before the complaints flooded in. And despite the apology after the fact, so to speak, we're prepared to bet it will retain the income. Look, I wish the socialists and myopic evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers would abandon this plan for same work, same pay, because it's becoming more apparent by the day that should caring employers be forced to pay workers the same pay for the same work, the proverbial sky will fall in. Why? Caring employers point out how much it would cost them. Uh, but, but doesn't that mean the cost is the amount you're ripping off workers now? We asked caring employer Michael Bloated. Good grief, where did that nonsense come from? The cost will be felt by all true blue Aussies, and that's all we care about. Putting my obviously stupid point to rest. But the caring employer genuine altruistic concern was expressed beautifully by Business Profits Council's supremo Jennifer Wester Wage Cuts. This proposal will make it harder for people to work an extra shift for that extra pay they need to make ends meet. Any wonder we call them caring employers. If ever we wanted proof, there it is. Their only concern, the workers, the people who work. Although, and far be it for us to be iconoclastic, although perhaps Jennifer could explain why people would need to work an extra shift to make ends meet. Surely she isn't suggesting inferring, no, 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 surely not, not under the greatest little economic order of them all, which put interest rates on hold for a month. Lucky, really, because Tuesday morning, the big day, capitalist review P1 headline Pay growth pressures RBA on rates. Yes, wages, the sole cause of inflation, were yet again causing dyspepsia in the hard-working boardrooms. The slow wages growth caring employers tell us they so wish they could solve is causing massive increases in their prices and profits, which shows how out of touch is the OECD, not exactly a Workers of the World Unite hotbed, out of touch, announcing wages had nothing to do with inflation, that it was caused by bumper profits. Any wonder the True Aussie Capitalist Review and its corporate supporters ignore such nonsense. Uh, You could control inflation by not putting up your prices so high, your, your bumper profits, we again asked Michael bloated. Another unintelligent, ignorant question, ignoring the problems we are confronted with in slow wages growth. Doesn't he know how to put me in my place? Mentioned last week, former advisor to former big Supremo little Johnny Howhard, Nick Hossack, real name, writing a think piece, the Think Bits Questionable, but telling us PwC, for Pricks with Confidentiality, was just doing what the caring business class does, that the private sector is different to the public sector. <laughs> Gee, we hadn't noticed that. Like we said, the snake asks, why did you bite me? Because I'm a snake. Well, Nick would have been proud of Uber and Facebook this week when it was revealed they had set up new company structures to evade the new multinational tax avoidance law days before it came into effect, on the advice, of course, of pricks with confidentiality who, like Uber and Facebook, were just doing their business, as Nick would say, just doing what the private sector does. And just doing what he does, the Robo-Debt Commission declares former big supremo scumbo lied in the witness box. (laughs) Gee, what's new there? (laughs) More on that report next week. Bit of a deadline problem there. Other than Constable Duffer says it's the socialists playing politics. Like, you know, politics. Right. Poor, innocent, caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit parties. And a Freudian, given the subject... When I went back, this is true, I had typed Constable Suffer, a country that suffered thanks to us. Notice Vietnam has banned this Barbie movie, apparently over a scene involving disputed territory with China in the South China Sea. Pity, because I was hoping that after bravely rejecting being destroyed, bombed, the proverbial out of, poisoned and slaughtered by the U.S. of the U.N., of the U.S. of the world and true blue Aussie in an illegal invasion, this time they may have been rejecting being invaded again by U.S. of cultural crap. While in the week that was sport, culture wars broke out. Forget Ukraine, forget the US ob encirclement ob and warmongering over evil China and therefore Trublowazi sucking up war mongering. Forget thirty eight million a day for nuclear train killers. This is serious. World War three could break out any day as a batsman got stumped after mindlessly meandering down the pitch. Trublowazzi cheats. His Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country and its Big Supremo screamed, destroying the spirit of war, shame. Pommy, we get a life. He was, out of the, he was out, the Antipodean colony and its Big Supremo responded, showing there can be two sides to the same story. But finally, I've got this brilliant advice for the His Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Supremo. Tell Anthony albing to stick focus that you're ending the alliance. that stump Anthony and save us 38 mil a day for 30 years in the process.
3: Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at freecr.org.au. Or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 039419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. Or simply post your check or money order to P.O. Box1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon
1: 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical.
3: and Bounds Music Festival is warming up winter in Yarra. Don't miss the Archie Roach Foundation presenting Singing Our Futures, a fundraiser with Emma Donovan, Kiwak Kennel, and Kian at the Corner Hotel. Explore the program by visiting the website lbmf.com.au Leaps and Bounds, 13th to 16th of July. Yarra City Council is a 3CR supporter.
4: See what I want to think now's
3: the time to grab it
1: we have a right to be in public space, undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do.
2: Multiple actions
0: rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change.
1: And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protests. Protest works.
5: That's why I think uh, we're seeing it criminalized all over the place. 3CR, Stay tuned, stay radical.
1: It's now a month since Kathleen Volby was pardoned and released after 20 years in jail over the death of her four children. Soon after, academic and writer Binoy Campmark wrote an article in Eureka Street titled Kathleen Folbig Monster, Mythology and Science. I've asked Binoy to talk about his paper and also the fact that most Australians have little idea how frequently miscarriages of justice in the form of wrongful convictions occur in Australia. First, Binor, you begin your article talking about the 1994 wreath lecture by Marina Warner. Who is Marina Warner and what is her significance to the case of Kathleen Folbig?
5: Yes, well, thank you, Jan. So, the interesting thing about uh, Maria Warner's uh, famous wreath uh, lecture, 1994, was to deal with, um, and, and it's a series of lectures where she describes the monster in mythology, and on this particular occasion, what interested her was the idea, the motif of the monstrous mother, uh, the idea of this uh, uncontrollable, powerful, if you like, almost animal spirit governed by a certain energy uh, and maternal energy. And one of those things that she, of course, draws reference in looking at precedent, looking at the literature on this, is certainly the, the mother who's um, uh, prone to uh, killing children, or at least in the concept of the, how it's literally considered. And, of course, the famous child killers, Medea, made famous by the playwright Euripides, and as she says herself, among bad mothers of fantasy, she is the worst, as such she speaks to our times, when the bad mother is always present as an issue, as a threat, as an excuse, as a pleasure, self-justification, and and as a political argument. So I thought it was very apt uh, in terms of how she described this, in terms of how it appears in trials and in Determinations such as that that happened with Kathleen Folby, who, of course, as we know, was convicted wrongfully, as it turns out, for the deaths of her four children, three for murder, one for um, manslaughter. And that raises, of course, all the issues connected with this monster image, if you like.
1: Well, let's look at her case, 2003. Just go back onto that case and what they say happened
5: So one of the things that uh, stood out in this, a couple of things that make it critical here, of course, there were the alleged uh, or the the deaths of the four children in question, Caleb, Patrick, Sarah, and Laura. Uh, There was the issue of the diaries that she had at the time, which her husband produced and gave to the police. In these particular diaries is mention of remorse and how she felt responsible. And this turned out to be rather critical in the context of the prosecution case because the prosecution decided that these particular expressions and ruminations, if you like, amounted to a confession of murder. So it was very telling the way that was used. It was also very striking that in the context of the prosecutions throughout, you know, and that included also what happened at the appeal stages and so forth, the, it was considered highly improbable that the deaths could have arisen in the same family in natural sense. But it is very important to note that there was already a convention, probably of some doubts, even then, in terms of the medical science, as to whether, you know, she could have, ne- she would have necessarily been responsible for all these deaths. There was an effort made initially to have separate trial of each of the instances with the children, but that failed, and that gave the prosecution a chance to use a lot of c- uh, circumstantial evidence and coinc- coincidence evidence, as it's called. To bring the case against her. Um, and that led, as I said, to a couple of appeals, and all of them failed at each juncture because there was, and what was striking about it was that the expert evidence adduced refused to take into account the evolving nature of the field about uh, deaths taking place in the same family. And that was the critical issue in the Fulbright case deaths that is naturally taking place.
1: And in a sense, was it science versus the law?
5: Yes, in a very strong way, it was science versus the law, but it was also perceptions of science versus the law. So within the science fair fraternity, uh, and of course, what happens in the case of, of courts is that the courts will select the science they prefer, the narrative as shape that they find uh, most um, you know, appealing, if you like. Uh, But unfortunately for Kathleen Folbig, what happened in this case was that the science that was being submitted by the defense, by her defense team, uh, which took into account uh, the presence of, for example, um, subsequently genetic mutation uh, in children that could be the cause of death, uh, the possibility that, yes, it was possible in families to have, certainly with three or four children in a family, and in cases of such tragedy as all of them dying or several of them dying. That it could be because of natural causes, and it did not necessarily have to mean, you know, the the wickedness of the particular um, murderer or the uh, you know the the mother in question. But this was a long-standing battle of of perceptions of science, and you know they've been amply exposed over over the years. You know, in a sense, this would not have happened, the overturning of the verdict or the quashing rather would not have happened, but for the you know the efforts of unusually the Australian Academy of Science who got involved and intervened in the case also the efforts of the clinical geneticist carola uh, vinuesa who's now head of the francis crick institute in london who took an interest in the case from 2018 and uh, let's not forget of course the efforts of uh, the uh, legal academic emma cunliffe who in 2011 was already you know in her book murder medicine and motherhood does actually talk about the existing state of science at the time and how Fulbig in all likelihood, you know, the verdict might not have been safe because there was a considerable chance that infant deaths could be explained and ha- happening in one family without murder having necessarily taken place.
1: And is it instructed that the main protagonists for challenging the verdict were women?
5: I think it, it's very hard to, uh, to deny that that was a significant element of it. It, it should be noted that uh, there were, of course, a very ample you know, able collaborators, you know, working, for example, with, uh, uh, with Vionessa, you know, individuals such as uh, todo Asov, you know, who was a considerable uh, figure in this, in securing the DNA sample of Fulbig, for example, or, you know, that, in that instance, uh, and, and so forth. And several, I should add, also Danish scientists also um, conducted some research around the case and also came to the conclusion, you know, that there was some some sort of, uh, you know, something dubious here. Yeah, work, for example, from uh, uh, Michael Toft uh, Ogor uh, who's an expert on cardiac conditions arising from the gene mutation that Fulbig's children is said to have had. But it was overwhelming, that a very impressive presence, if you like, of uh, certainly female um, scientists, geneticists, investigators, that also did provide a lot of uh, a, a very formidable counter to what was happening.
1: And on the other side, perhaps you could say a vindictive husband
5: well yes he he just and even to this day, um, I, I have this through the lawyer, his lawyer representing his case that he just cannot possibly believe that um, she was not responsible for the deaths of her of their children, uh, that she was in fact responsible for smothering them, and that this he's never really been able to accept this um, narrative or this emerging narrative about. A mutation, gene mutation, as for him, he does essentially think that uh, her verdict of guilty is one of those that should stand.
1: It's not just him thinking, he actually handed over the diaries.
5: Yes, or no? he thought that and he was convinced, yes, you know, he, and he himself had uh, um, encountered, and that just demonstrates uh, the lack of nuance or understanding and, you know, one's uh, traumatized state of mind. Of course, one can express remorse and Feel responsibility without necessarily being an instrument, a guilty instrument, in acting it. You know, so that was something that he evidently never, never took. Uh, you know, beyond what he thought was her guilt.
1: It was perseverance, wasn't it? The appeals: two thousand three, two thousand five, two thousand seven, and then you've got the the book by 2000, 2011 by Emma. The perseverance and the number of mainly women, not always. Who believed she was innocent
5: yes it's it's remarkable it, it is uh, an act of um, astonishing perseverance and a genuine sense uh, on the part of those advocating for for Folbig that uh, she had a very good chance of being innocent in the context and it just it also tied in with the just the the accumulating body of evidence about uh, genetic mutations that would take place uh, in the same family, and, and, you know, especially the CALM2 gene and the mutation that was so significant in this. You know. But what is so striking in is, and they had to be persistent, because at each turn they kept being, you know, beaten back by this uh, conservative assessment of the sciences showing that and remarkably, and, and this is something, I know Emma Cunliffe has also made the point and said that she just really can't quite understand why the expert witnesses for the prosecution of the body of science being adduced to each and every stage of these appeals did not seem to sway things. It only took until very recently, of course, that final investigation and the findings in April that this particular, uh, that that the innocence of Falbeck had to be considered as a serious prospect. But even as far back, or not that far back, but in 2019, the inquiry that was then led by former New South Wales District Court Chief Judge Reginald Blanche found, and I mention his words, her guilt of these offences was even more certain. So it was quite extraordinary. So it took essentially right up, and as I said, to the instance of the latest, the last uh, or the second judicial inquiry led by New South Wales Chief Justice Tom Batters that did find reasonable doubt in all of the four convictions, all of the four offences, as it were, and he said in his words, and I quote, the coincidence and tendency evidence which was central to the 2003 Crown case falls away. And that's where we ended up in the situation we find.
1: And of course, she was punished twice, wasn't she? Because in prison, she had to be separated for her own safety.
5: Yes, exactly. It's this classic instance of uh, you know, double punishment in a sense, because on the one hand, you are convicted for... Uh, these these terrible crimes, and then on the other hand, because there is such a sensitivity about uh, about children, um, and the same thing applies, of course, to any offences against children. Uh, those who are convicted of them are, are usually at least in danger when they're in in you know their cells and of course in proximity to other inmates. So that that tended to be a case too there.
1: Well, to finish this this part with Kathleen, can we go back to the Reith lecture and? Another woman, Christine de Pizan.
5: Yes, well, what is, uh, and I thought it was such a wonderful thing, you know, in in terms of the reference to such a figure, you know, Christine de Pizan, who was a young widow writing in 1405, you know, and uh, she's famous for this masterpiece, this book of the City of Ladies. And the reason why it's interesting is that she made an effort, and she was one of those very, certainly comes across as a very modern. Figure because being a young widow, she also needed to support her family and did so through her writing. So one of those very interesting instances where she did try to get some income, albeit it was in the 15th century, through her writing. And she, this particular book is like an allegorical account that revives or re, re-envisages uh, women um, and fallen women in some ways in, different, you know, in, in a more heroic context. And she actually does see Medea as a remarkable figure. Um, in her words, Medea was very beautiful, with a noble and upright heart and a pleasant face. And so in this particular case, she just says you know, that Medea has to be seen differently, not as this monster, but is to be understood as having her own passions, her own tragedies, her own frailties. Let's not forget that the um, the deaths inflicted on her children were done also in, as in a vengeance, in a sense, knowing that uh, the husband who spurned her uh, essentially would be also hurt by the actions. So one has to... Appreciate the context, the broader picture, and uh, Christine de Pizan actually does a very good job of doing that.
1: Well, what we've been discussing, Benoit, is just one case of wrongful conviction in Australia. Now we've got Kathleen and Lindy Chamberlain as aberrations in overturning convictions, but we don't really know, do we, how many people have been wrongly convicted, and there are moves in other countries to try and over- overturn this ignorance.
5: Yes, uh, absolutely, and I think this is where um, the Australian jurisdictions could learn a lot. Uh, The the Falbig case is again an instance where the Australian judicial and justice system, broadly speaking, is somewhat lagging uh, um, from other jurisdictions. So, be it uh, in the case of the innocence projects in the United States, which have made uh, good use of DNA exonerations, for example, or be it the establishment of the Criminal Cases Review Commission, Um, In England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, which uh, deals in overseas wrongful conviction cases, all of these demonstrate um, a considerable body of work that that goes to the extent of how many wrongful convictions they actually are in the justice system. Uh, Work done, for example, on the conviction quashings, if you like, that take place from the Criminal Cases Review Commission uh, that oversees the English judicial system is quite remarkable. Kerry Breen and Stephen Cordner do, you know, in their particular work, do actually consider extrapolating the data from the English context, which has, and of course in England, uh, Wales and Northern Ireland, there's a comparable system in terms of how it operates relative to Australia. And They come to the conclusions in their work, and remember this is extrapolated about wrongful uh, convictions, you know, so it is, it is a bit speculative, but it is a very educated guess that if you were to compare the systems, you would find that in Australia, there would be roughly 300 cases that would be referred to appeal, courts, so to appeal courts, 200 convictions quashed, 90 convictions might be upheld with five awaiting judgments. So on average, there'd be nine people discovered to be wrongfully convicted on an annual basis. You know, and they do this because in the English criminal case review commissions, you know, between you know, 1997, for example, which was established in 1997, in March 2018, there were 657 cases referred to the appeals courts and 441 convictions, an astonishing 67% of that. And in 2021, the percentage was even higher, 33 cases referred to the court of appeal by the commission and 26 were quashed, a 79% success rate on that, which is astonishing. So when you start looking at those things and the problems with the system, you realise that Australia is sorely lacking in terms of having an oversight body that can either independently quash the unsafe verdict or refer that particular verdict to, as it were, retrial or a court of appeal hearing.
1: Is there any push or is there a, a large push to establish one of those criminal cases?
5: Well, the What has happened is that in each of the states, there has been a move, first of all, at the legislative level to try to establish avenues of appeal uh, to the courts that make it easier for those wrongfully convicted. So, for example, in South Australia, which is one of the first jurisdictions in 2013, legislation was uh, introduced um, that enabled, for example, um, Henry Keogh to um, have his particular wrongful conviction quashed uh, for the 1995, for the murder of his fiancée, found to be wrongfully convicted for. But the problem with these particular avenues is that there's a key test to all of them, which is that you have to show or adduce fresh and compelling evidence that the actual case is a wrongful conviction case. And that can sometimes be very difficult for the applicant to do so. So what we really ideally need is a body such as uh, the English Criminal Case Review Commission along that line. Um, And even though in in parts of the legal profession there is an interest in it, there is as yet no real unified push to establish it. So it, it is hoped that the Falby case has certainly got tongues wagging. It's certainly got people talking about this. And hopefully it's a spur, it's a catalyst to do something more on that front.
1: Well, they talk about the case of Robert Farquharson. Can you compare the two cases of this man and kathleen
5: yes the 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 Ferguson case is interesting because that again is is a, it also has children it was, but in this case it's a bit it's somewhat different in so far as here we're talking about and it's a rather curious case it always a bit, was a bit odd even at the time to anybody who took an interest in it. It was certainly a bit of an odd thing so in two thousand and five you know, he drove his car into a dam and killed all of his uh, three sons from drowning. So remember, so he is in the car, he drives it into the dam, um, ends up killing his three sons, but he survives essentially unscathed. But all his claims about innocence were rejected all the way, again, very similar to the big instance. He argued, or he told police at the time, that he had had a violent coughing episode. There's enough uh, medical evidence to suggest that you know, some of these conditions, a coughing episode, led to his blackout, a loss of consciousness. And he ended up driving over the overpass, and ended up you know, in the dam. So the prosecution evidence more or less was arguing that he was a very skilled driver who had exactly timed it at that time of the night, at that time and so on, to drive at that particular point and very skillfully maneuver the car into the dam, essentially make sure his sons had drowned, and then get out of the car safely. It was, very, it was quite peculiar even then. Um, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest, uh, and there's also been material written about this, to suggest that Farkasen would be the beneficiary of a review commission, uh, or, and certainly. But so far, it's the Victorian equivalent of what happened in New South Wales. There have been appeals made. He has lost these appeals, and there is a distinct sense that he is that this verdict is unsafe. But that's that's something that well, hopefully will be revisited in due course.
1: Well, all we've been talking about, you know, is absolutely a, a human rights issue for many Australians.
5: Fundamentally. Oh yes, uh, I think it's you know it's one of those things that uh, in when we talk about the justice system and we talk about fairness and we talk about you know, the the dangers sometimes you know regarding evidence you know the, it is very clear that uh, when we talk about matters of convictions you know they should be based on evidence of beyond reasonable doubt and the problem in these cases be it Falbe be it you know, and I'm now is that there they must be some element of doubt. And even if there is just that element of doubt, it renders any conviction unsafe. And yet, with certitude, the evidence you know, that's been marshaled by the prosecution has been seen to be of such a nature that it should not be disturbed. And that uh, is um, deeply troubling. And When you consider, for example, you know, and, and let's face it, you know, there's some very inglorious things broadly here where we consider malfeasance, and when we consider for example the cases such as the Lawyer X instance you know, where the barrister uh, you know, Gobbo was actually also informing against her own clients you know, by you know, being a police informant, we have a really desperate state of affairs of the requirement of some review commission or some body of oversight.
1: Your final comments?
5: Well, I think from this tragic situation from Folbury, well, first of all it was... Uh, uh, it was a testament to the the sheer strength and determination of her advocates and for those around it was uh, also a testament to those in showing a more positive side of science in the law. Um, but I think the final reflection I want to make about that, hoping that things will come out of this sort of a constructive nature with the Falbig, the fall being redeemed, is that we need to also always be careful that science has its limits because this was in a sense, a battle of scientific perceptions and unfortunately. From Folbig's perspective, the science that was used was of such a nature that it should have been challenged and wasn't until subsequent years when changes, evolutions in the field and research was done that um, uh, showed her case to be a very good one indeed.
1: Well, thank you so much.
5: Pleasure. Anytime, yeah.
1: Binoy Kampmark is a lecturer at RMIT University here in Melbourne. He's also a contributor to The Mandarin, Eureka Street, Pearls and Irritations, and I'm sure there are a couple more
3: the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July, and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long-sleeve tops that proudly say workers' radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Tops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy.
1: In recent days, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, approved plans by Japan to release more than 1.3 million tonnes of water from the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the ocean, despite lobbying from the local fishing community and other countries in the region. To discuss the consequences, I spoke with Associate Professor Stillman Ruff, co-founder of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, member of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and much more. Tillman, can you outline what the IAEA Safety Review contains on the issue of that discharge of water and indeed would you have expected anything less?
6: What they've done is a review of Japan's plans and compared it with, the IAEA standards for how these decisions are supposed to be made. So it's quite a detailed report, 127 pages, with several annexes and other reports. Look, it's not surprising, really, that it's given essentially a carte blanche to, to what Japan's doing. It's very interesting the way it's couched. I think it's actually dishonest, because... It's clearly a, a big deal, and the IAEA is making a big deal of it. The uh, Director General Rafael Grossi, travelled to Japan to personally hand the report to the Prime Minister. Uh, you know, with much fanfare and media, he opened his remarks to the Prime Minister, at least the public ones, you know, saying this is a very special night. And he's been in Japan for several days. Subsequently, with the media in, in tow you know, meeting groups in Fukushima, talking to fishermen, visiting the plant, quite high-profile things. He says, and the report states, that the report is not a recommendation or an endorsement of the Japanese government's decision to discharge the water, that that's a national decision that's not uh, within the purview of the IAEA, but they have essentially just reviewed the safety aspects and whether, specifically whether... decision that Japan has made and the evidence supporting it complies with the IAEA safety standards. So de facto, in practice, they are endorsing this discharge very strongly while claiming that they aren't. So I guess it really holds this conflicted role that the IAEA has. It's it's a critically important organization. I mean, it's the UN watchdog for nuclear programs to try and make sure that they remain peaceful and divert material to weapons. You know, that's a really important job. And they have very important technical and and laboratory capacities. But they also have this mandate that conflict with the role of an independent objective regulator, which in their charter, they very clearly and all of the politics and history of their setting up and the way they work is that they're also specifically mandated to promote the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. So they have this conflicted role that they're trying to promote. They're charged with promoting what they're supposed to regulate. And I think that leads to all sorts of intrinsic structural conflicts in their role and why the endorsement of the Japanese government's plan to discharge the water is no surprise. I mean, the IAEA has said all along um, essentially that it, it supports this, and that Japan seems to be doing this in a way that meets the safety standards that they have established. Some of which are extremely lax, I have to say. You know, they envisage um, doses for non-human organisms that are that are extraordinarily high. You know, that that are the annual human limit uh, for a year in a day, every day. So some of them are, are. You know, the limits are. I think open to some pretty serious. And even though. They claim it's not an endorsement.
4: It is.
1: Just who are the members of this body? is the director general? What's the expertise of the others who make these decisions?
6: But the IAEA is quite a large, you know, UN organisation in, in Vienna. It's governed a little bit like a sort of mini United Nations within it. Um, there are member states, so essentially every state with any interest in. Nuclear activities uh, is a member. It's not all the UN membership, but it's most of them. And then there's a board of governors, which is a, a, a smaller group, but still substantial, several tens of tens of nations. And that's essentially like the parliament, the governing body that provides uh, use uh, what the organisation does. And then there's the director general and and the secretariat with many different functions and many different aspects. It, em- it employs you know, many hundreds of people in, in, of varying degrees, some of them highly technically expert, all sorts of different people interested and, and expert in various aspects of, of nuclear issues and managed nuclear facilities and programs.
1: So you're not too impressed or much joy from the results of this review. What happens next with this water?
6: The next step for the IAEA is that they'll set up an office and, and continue to monitor what's going on, not not to control what's going on, but to monitor it. Uh, they'll be taking samples and sending them to various laboratories around the world and and hopefully providing some level of transparency and and real-time reporting of what's going on. Uh, but it's all a bit sort of post-hoc. What actually happens is determined by the decisions of the Japanese government, my guess is that now they've they've been suggesting for some time that this discharge would commence you know sometime during the northern spring or summer, so by around if it hasn't happened already, which it hasn 't been you know sometime pretty soon, July or August is now the the date that's been suggested for when they 'll discharge. I gather the construction of of the pipe, the tunnel that goes out under the the seabed to discharge the water about a kilometre off the coast is complete and presumably Japan will proceed uh, at some point in the next month or two. You know, these discharges will continue over it's projected over 30 or 40 years so this is not a short-term process and the contaminated water that is the source of this problem why they have such large amounts of radioactively contaminated water to deal with will continue to accumulate at the site at an average of about 90 or 100 uh, tonnes per day. So that, presuming that things remain stable, which one can't really assume. I think it's very important for people to understand that this is not a normal, controlled situation. These are ad hoc, difficult arrangements dealing with the aftermath of a very complex uh, disaster. And all of the facilities and infrastructure and processes to try and manage this are vulnerable, indeed increased of increased vulnerability to further disruption, for example, from further earthquakes or tsunamis, which is always on the cards in Japan. So the water problem is a, is an ongoing problem. It's been for a very long time and the discharge is projected to to continue over decades. I guess one implication of that is that even if, uh, regrettably, this discharge starts, it doesn't mean that it, that it can't be stopped.
1: It's just 30, 40 years. Does that mean that it's going to take that long to cool the rods or does it mean that it's going to take that long before they work out what they're going to do?
6: Well, that's the period over which the water that's already accumulated, roughly 1.3 million tonnes and a bit more, more coming every day, that's already accumulated on site, that's in yep. you know, well over 1,000 large tanks. So that's just, at this stage, they haven't made announcements or specific plans that certainly that are available publicly about what they want to do with the continuing accumulation of water. They'll they'll have to manage that. Presumably presumably they'll manage it in much the same way. So these discharges will continue on current plans for, for many decades.
1: So as soon as they empty one tank, another one will fill up or the same one will fill up with more water? Emptying
6: tanks at a time and sort of mixing them up so that they're reasonably homogenous. You know, shifting stuff from tank to between tanks. It's a fairly complicated process, and they may also be uh, diluting the tanks' water before it's released with seawater in order to get the concentration of the tritium, which is the isotope that's I guess there's been most discussion about. It's the main one that they can't. Clean from from the water, to try and get that below the Japanese drinking water standard, which is it's called 1500 um, becquerels per liter. So that's the amount of radioactivity per liter of water from tritium that that is the Japanese standard. So that's what they're aiming for. So so the volume of water that actually be discharged will be considerably larger than the 1.3 million tons that's there already, um, and of course it will be it will be added to the dilution of course won't uh, change the amount of radioactivity that's going to be released but it's i think it's largely a way of trying to deflect uh, public criticism to to focus on the concentration which is you know within a, a limit even if it's not a particularly relevant one this is not drinking water this is being discharged into the sea where it can concentrate uh, in sediments and marine organisms and become organically uh, which makes it more biologically damaging and, and persist for longer in, in plants and animals. So the applicability of, this, of the standard that they're using is in question. Uh, but I think in large part it's really to, as a PR thing to try and reduce concern about the discharge that they want to dilute it as well as do it over a long period of time.
1: What happened in the aftermath of Chernobyl?
6: The cooling water, well, they were rather different accidents so in in Chernobyl, is clearly a long way from the sea and um, next to a water body. Immediately, in Chernobyl, there was a really an explosive propulsion of, of substantial contents of the of the reactor itself was basically blasted high into the atmosphere, sort of pulverized and, and dispersed, uh, you know, widely. So the fallout from Chernobyl was bigger and um, and nastier, longer-lived than Fukushima uh, fallout in in some respects. Fukushima involved more reactors, but it was a different kind of of disaster. It was mainly hydrogen explosions, so the the hot fuel reacting with with steam and the elements, there's hundreds of different radioactive elements produced inside a reactor. Some of them are gases, some of them dissolve in water, and it's particularly those that, that were discharged uh, into into air and water. And then because of how the Fukushima reactors sit, you know, they were dug down, the site was dug down 15 metres below where it started, the land, basically to make it cheaper and easier to, to cool them and build them and have to pump the water less distance. The site was completely inundated and it was being washed through with water, constantly groundwater um, pouring into the broken basements and broken reactor containments and also water being poured onto the top of the through the open tops of the of the reactors in you know the desperate effort to try and keep them the melted fuel cool so we don't have this same issue of you know water traveling through this constantly and and becoming contaminated and needing to be to be managed in Chernobyl that um, reactor is being watched um, it's warming up um, there's certainly possibilities that when reactor fuel you know isn't organized into neat little thin fuel rods with their cladding and and, and, and spaced appropriately with uh, material between them to slow down the nuclear reaction and cool them when that complicated structure is disrupted and you basically get a big congealed Uh, Mess of you know, these great lumps of molten fuel in Chernobyl. There's this thing called the elephant's foot Where where there's this sort of molten Corium it's called it's basically core of reactor plus a whole lot of other Rubbish that's in this big congealed mass that sort of melted and flowed out the basement So it's a mess in there and there's and it's possible for just because this The structure has been disrupted and it's not controlled anymore for critical reactions to actually occur again, you know, in ways that they aren't supposed to. So Chernobyl, that molten mess on the bottom is actually heating up again. So that warrants watching. But, But the European Union largely has donated something like, you know, 10 billion, a very large sum of money to build essentially this huge containment structure over the whole of Chernobyl Reactor 4. Which is is designed to to avoid you know any any major release of radioactivity for the next hundred years or so. What happens after that is is you know a problem for the future. Clearly, the reactor will be a problem for tens of thousands of years, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Not not a hundred. In Fukushima, the plan that TEPCO has, I think, completely unrealistically, is still to to decommission these reactors. So basically, to take all the radioactive material out of them, and you know basically clean up the site and make it possible to be used for some other other purpose it's extremely like unlikely that that's possible. you know every step of the process has been difficult and delayed. They have no idea how to get the molten fuel out until very recently, even all of the robotic equipment that was used to try and even get a look inside was malfunctioning You know, within a couple of hours because of the intense radioactivity in there. It's, a, it's an environment that's impossible for people to, to work in. So I, I think it's very likely that in Fukushima as well, at some point, they're going to have to abandon the decommissioning idea and and simply try and contain those structures, the damaged reactors and the spent fuel ponds, in a way that seals them not just from the atmosphere, but also goes underneath them because it's going to. They're going to need to be shielded from the sea and, and groundwater as well.
1: How many similar nuclear power plants are there around the coast of Japan?
6: Yes, before uh, the Fukushima disaster, Japan had 54 operating nuclear power reactors. They were all shut down uh, very rapidly. Since then, about 10 of them have been restarted, um, often highly contested, and and of course with increased costs and and safety upgrades required because of the increased safety requirements after the Fukushima disaster. The Fukushima reactors were sort of Mark 1 boiling water reactors, Westinghouse construction. It turns out that there was quite a lot of corruption and fabrication of of records in their construction that... um, TEPCO got into serious trouble with them some more than a decade ago. So it's quite possible that they're, that they're shoddily uh, and inadequately constructed in the first place. but they're a very old style of of reactor, but there's plenty of them both in Japan and elsewhere around the world. Are
1: they in earthquake areas, or is Japan just an earthquake well, area? Well,
6: really, all of Japan is pretty, you know, as seismically prone as as it gets. Really, you know, that coast. It's extraordinary. You know, I visited there a number of times. There are still old people who can remember the tsunamis in the 1930s. There are people whose families have stories of the 1890s tsunami that was, um, you know, bigger than this one. You know, this is not new or, you know, unexpected development. Even though it was a, a terribly large earthquake and and a massive tsunami that followed, these are not so unusual. You know, there were there've been five earthquakes of that size in the 20th century, and there's been a couple already this century, most of them followed by tsunamis. And I think one of the crucial lessons of the Fukushima disaster is that although for some time the government and TEPCO were claiming that the problems with the reactors only began when the tsunami hit and that it wasn't the earthquake itself that damaged the reactors, there's very clear evidence from some international monitoring from the stations that monitor radioisotopes around the world to implement the comprehensive test ban, test ban treaty that were highlighted by the independent commission that the Japanese parliament established, the only such independent commission they've ever established, which clearly highlighted that there was radioactivity leaking between the earthquake happening in the half an hour between the earthquake happening and the tsunami hitting. So that is what happens, what happened in Fukushima has implications not for power plants that are near the sea that are vulnerable to tsunamis, but for essentially all power plants that are, you know, all of which are vulnerable and and potentially at risk of, of earthquakes.
1: Well, looking at the near future now with the imminent release of the water, what are the fears of what this contaminated water will do? And also the relations between Japan and the neighboring countries for doing this against the wishes of many many people around the area
6: i think it's a really bad decision and i think it will cause ongoing problems for the japanese government there's a huge level of now post disaster given not just the disaster but the appalling management of it and the bad decisions that have been taken you know in the 12 years since Everything that that could basically go wrong has has gone wrong and been decided. And the the terrible problems that the Independent Investigation Commission established of collusion and corruption between industry, regulators, and government, of governments that were incompetent and essentially did not have public health and safety first uh, in their considerations. You know, the chair of that Independent Investigation Commission tears his hair out. I've spoken to him a couple of times since about how most of the lessons and most haven't been heeded and most of the commission's recommendations have not been implemented so there's a huge and justified i have to say unfortunately level of distrust about tepco and the japanese government who have delayed and hidden things and lied and and really made some very bad decisions and done some extraordinarily harmful things like denying that there is a a thyroid cancer epidemic in children it's much more than the one that happened after Chernobyl but there is a thyroid cancer epidemic they continue to say that 20 millisieverts per year of radiation from Fukushima related sources is okay for the general population in Japan 20 times higher than the level it was before and in just about every other country there are no plans to reduce that now 12 years after the disaster They've forced people to go back, uh, withdrawn housing subsidies and support uh, to encourage people to go back into areas where people really shouldn't be. So I think there's a justified level of, of distrust amongst both Japanese people and, and, and people in the region. The concern is that we don't really know what's in the tank order in detail. We don't know that they're, it's not the same thing in each of the tanks. There's probably solid material and in, in sludges, particularly in the early tanks, um, which haven't been analysed. The sampling that TEPCO has done has been quite unrepresentative and unscientific uh, and incomplete. The best independent assessment of what's in the tanks and what should be done with the water, in my view, has been conducted by a, a five-member, very impressive independent expert scientific panel commissioned By the Pacific Islands Forum, scientists from the United States and Hawaii and Australia who've really produced some really very uh, authoritative and and truly independent and critical reports that have highlighted major problems that we really don't know what's in these tanks. We really don't know how well the system, the ALP system, the advanced liquid processing system that Japan has to remove most of the radioactive materials. We don't know how well that works. And so there is concern. That that's a really, you know, backward, nineteenth-century dilution is the solution to pollution kind of approach to just dump it in the sea and forget about it. And but thereby create a transgenerational, a transboundary issue for people who live in the Pacific and around the Pacific Rim, particularly uh, those who are dependent on. Seafood and especially subsistence, fisher folk, you know, Pacific Island countries, uh, countries of Southeast Asia, Vietnam, et cetera. And of course, the the seafood industry and fisher people in Japan who have been very consistently, adamantly opposed to this discharge and have simply been run over roughshod. The problem is that there's lots of nasty isotopes as well as tritium. That recent evidence clearly shows that tritium isn't as benign as, as the nuclear industry has Has claimed in the past, and that all of this adds to a preventable uh, burden of radiation for people living around the Pacific and consuming seafood from it. Once this material is released into the water, it moves with the ocean currents, it it concentrates up the food chain, uh, it becomes organically bound, uh, you know, it can't be controlled. And the thing that I think is really reprehensible about this whole process is that they have not adequately considered uh, seriously alternatives. And the panel that, that the Pacific Island Forum established uh, has re- just in the last couple of weeks released a detailed paper uh, recommending their p- preferred option for an alternative. And that is that TEPCO processed the water uh, in the way that's planned to remove much of the, the radioactive material. It's used for making concrete uh, for structural applications. So you know, road bases, bridges, foundations of buildings, you know, uh, levee walls, tsunami protection along the coast. There's all kinds of structural applications that would have little contact with people, uh, where m- most of the residual radioactivity would be well contained, and that would essentially pose a negligible risk to people and the environment. That wasn't adequately explored or, or, or costed. Um, another uh, proposal that an expert group in Japan proposed is that proper dedicatedly safe large tanks be built, uh, similar to the tanks that are used for Japan's national oil reservoir, and the contaminated water be been purified as much as possible, uh, be essentially stored there for some decades. 50 60 years which would enable tritium and a number of other important isotopes like cesium and strontium to decay cesium's half-life is 30 years so in 60 years it'll be a quarter of what was there originally tritium's half-life is 12 years so you know in 50 years there will only be a 16th of, of what was there originally so it'd be a much smaller problem to deal with those alternatives It's still not too late to do so now, but it clearly would have been much better to do so, you know, review all of the evidence uh, about the pros and cons of all of the reasonable, feasible options. And that simply wasn't done. I suspect the political decision that we're going to discharge this water was taken some time ago, the the government pretty much said as much two years ago, and they've simply softened it up and, and justified it progressively over the two years since. But those alternatives weren't properly considered. And, and as I mentioned, even though this water discharge seems likely to start, that certainly doesn't mean that it can't be stopped and an alternative implemented you know, even afterwards. So it's still not too late, I think, to express, uh, express concern about this and encourage uh, government and TEPCO to, to do differently. But unfortunately, the nuclear industry around the world gets away with discharging large amounts of tritium, in its cooling water, and that, in fact, tritium is the radioactive material that's released in, in largest amount from normally operating uh, nuclear facilities. So there are lots of, of countries, essentially every country that, that runs nuclear power plants, you know, doesn't particularly highlight the problem of concerns about tritium because they're all discharging quite large amounts of it. Uh, And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a lacklustre, Response from from the IAEA on this, because tritium discharge is so intrinsic to the way the nuclear power industry works. You know, there are better ways of doing this, and Japan could have set a really good example, and set a new benchmark if they had um, heeded the regional concerns, the very strong opposition that you mentioned. Uh, in regional countries, particularly China, uh, Korea, and Pacific Island countries, have expressed you know very strong concerns about this, as well as a lot of expert groups and the National Association of Marine Laboratories in the United States, more than a hundred labs, you know, with many of the experts about oceanic radiation and chemistry, you know, have unanimously said this discharge shouldn't happen. Unfortunately, the evidence has been uh, ignored. Well, the final result. Unfortunately, it looks like, you know, a progressively more radioactively contaminated environment for the long term for all of us. An increasingly sizable contribution that will make to chronic disease, heart attacks and strokes, cancer risk for generations. Hence, and similar adverse consequences for plants and animals. Genetic damage, developmental abnormalities, infertility, tumours. Nobody, no living organism is unique from these effects, unfortunately. Try and do what we can about them. They're not going to go away by themselves or without, you know, concerned citizens raising their voices.
1: Sure. Thank you, Tillman. Thanks, Jan. And I've been speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff.
2: Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. The Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information
3: a 3CR supporter. Australia's
1: energy market is broken.
0: Right, but Copower gives you better energy?
1: Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back.
5: Victorian Energy Fact Sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au.
0: For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036.
3: A 3CR supporter.
1: One year ago, the 30th of June 2022, Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was sworn into office, sealing a family comeback that was decades in the making. So today we look back on the past year and what might lay ahead for the people of the Philippines, unless other nations confront the reality of his presidency and withdraw both military and financial support. I'm speaking with the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, Peter Murphy. But Peter, before we talk about the present situation in the Philippines, can I take you back to 1986? His father and his family were hounded out of the Philippines after what is known as the People Power Revolt. It's what they took with them, the wealth of the Filipino people, and the fact that the family, minus the dictator who died in exile in Hawaii three years later, returned to the Philippines not that long after. Is there any estimate to what they stole?
0: Maybe a few hundred million dollars. Was identified and uh, was the subject of some court rulings in the United States, but the total amount is estimated to be at least ten billion US dollars at that time. You know, 1986. Depending on how they they invested their um, plunder, um, it'd be worth much, much more now. Maybe we're talking about thirty billion or or more. Uh, so you know, they're a very, very well resourced uh, family.
1: But you could think what that would be for the people of the Philippines today if they had that money.
0: Oh, yes. yes, yes, it would be a significant help in, in you know domestic uh, economic development for the country if they could deploy that sort of money, which is uh, the people's money,
1: yeah. Well, we've had the first year, Peter. Have we got anything to look forward to in the following years of Marcos Jr.'s reign as president?
0: Um, I think we can look forward to uh, growing... Uh, Wave of protests against his policies now that we've seen one year at work. I I work through the International Coalition uh, for Human Rights in the Philippines and uh, specifically the Philippines Australia Union Link. So, you know, I've got a sort of human rights and trade union uh, angle. The uh, broader economics, you know, also is, is, you know, the framing of everything that um, is taking place. I, I think. Marcos has just continued the uh, neoliberal framework which Duterte had and the president before. But now we're in a world with uh, rising interest rates, uh, slowing economies everywhere and uh, really big pressure on the people in the Philippines because their incomes have not kept up with inflation at all. I mean, they've just gone backwards, something like 7% last year and another... You know something like that this year so it's um, painful and um, more and more people are looking for work overseas but the uh, overseas job market will also shrink a bit because of the global slowdown that's taking place and global recession in fact which is shaping up.
1: So you've got whole families, yeah. whole families trying to work together to just to survive?
0: You know struggle to survive which we hear in Australia You know, people talking about the difficulty of surviving in the Philippines, it's harsher. You know, people are all working in a much more, uh, you know, austere framework, very poor housing, very poor transport, uh, very, very poor health system and very low incomes. So uh, there's a huge informal uh, economy where, you know, there is some social security support, but it's very little and uh, not universal. So people um, who have got no uh, actual formal employment have to make do themselves, which is usually some kind of uh, street vending uh, sort of work. Very, very insecure.
1: Well, it could be a fairly rich country, couldn't it, Peter, with the mining, agriculture, the climate, apart from cyclones. Is the money being taken out of the country or is it the oligarchs within the country who are reaping the benefits?
5: It's
0: both. You know, the, uh, uh, most of the projects which are uh, involved with mineral exploitation and plantations and so on are either run by multinationals directly or joint ventures with local, you know, powerful families who you are know, nearly all represented in the Congress. So, yeah, I think uh, for the ordinary people, uh, they don't see anything much of this uh, wealth that, that the country does generate so yeah there's a an outflow of uh, capital it's an outflow of people the, and there's a sort of a screwing down happening on the uh, actual daily circumstances of the great majority of the people and that's why you can predict that as the years develop you know whatever euphoria there was one year ago at election time for marcos the grim daily reality is going to eat away at that um, whatever positive support did underlie that election result, dubious election result.
1: And what is the grim reality on the human rights front?
0: Well, it seems that uh, there's been very little let up in the killings of people in the countryside and threats, uh, pressures on trade unions, also people being disappeared. Uh, So it seems that... uh, this notorious uh, structure created by Duterte called NTF-ALCAC. It's a sort of joint police-military counterinsurgency plan or process. It's been given free reign and a big budget, and now Sarah Duterte, the vice president, is is uh, sitting at the head of the council as the Representative of President Marcos. So, that, so it's got this thing called the National Task Force. So she's at the top of the task force. She's a very, very energetic and nasty, but nasty um, capable uh, operator. And the the generals, uh, both the police and the military generals involved in NTFL CAC are uh, fanatics. Uh, there's been a few adjustments of the personnel uh, because of some very embarrassing things that have been said, but... In, in fact the NTF-LCAC program has expanded and we, we just um you know, see like a, there was a trade union organizer stabbed to death in uh, Negros and in, in April and uh then in uh, June we've just had um a terrible massacre of a family in Negros also uh these were sugar workers and uh This is the work of the NTF-ALCAC. And Negros is one of those um, provinces, or there's a couple of provinces on the island, uh, which um, was marked by Duterte back in uh, 2017 as a priority area for repression. So it's sort of got a a form of uh, emergency rule still applying there. It was um, Negros... Samar and Bicol areas were the ones designated at that time, so there's a lot of military there and uh it's it's a bit hard to follow the the actual actual conflict that might be going on between the new people's army and and the uh, Philippines military, but the civilians are certainly going down you know there's this family where the the parents were about fifty years old, and the the two sons were i think uh, eleven and Twelve or eleven and thirteen, you know, they were, they were shot dead in their house, or near the father was killed fifty meters from the house. Immediately, the um, police said that this was done by the New People's Army, despite all the evidence uh, to the contrary. So it, it, again, it, it's a sort of a immediate struggle um, to even try to define the facts in, in all of these sort of incidents, and that the sort of it's co- it's a sort of a cause for despair that you'll ever sort of get to the bottom of things, but it's also a sign of you know a really intense effort by the government forces to throw throw dust in the eyes of the, of the media and any other sort of independent observer of the situation, so that you can't quite can't quite follow what's going on. And anyway, I would say that the killing of you know two children and their parents by the military in at in, in ten o'clock at night. It's it's one of the worst ones for a little while now.
1: But Peter, it's not difficult to define the fact that the US, Canada, Australia, Japan, and South Korea are arming these military and police.
0: Yes, training. That's right. So uh, this is a long-standing uh, demand from our campaign in Australia that that the Australian uh, military and uh, the aid relationship with the Philippines be reviewed urgently because the aid is is uh, just helping a war against civilians in, in in that country, which is against international law, against domestic law, and it's probably you know I'm sure it's officially would be against Australian policy. Therefore, you know the Australian uh, Foreign Affairs Department and Defence Department obfuscate the situation, or you know use national security criteria to say that information will not be available and so on. That's been the situation all those years we had of um, the coalition government and, and now it's continuing under the Albanese government.
1: Do we need to look at the the um, position of the Philippines popping into the South China Sea but in the Pacific to get an understanding of why these countries are giving so much support to such a, a, a rogue administration over all those years?
0: Yeah. I mean, it goes back to Marcos Senior. So if you can think back to 1986, we had the Hawke Labor government. I I can still distinctly recall uh, the radio reporting, our ABC reporting that uh, the Australian government recognises Ferdinand Marcos as the president of the Philippines, but the helicopters had already taken him away. First of all, You know, the Hawke government was pretty slavishly supporting U.S. policy on the Philippines and our great and powerful friend, the U.S., was just not bothering to keep us informed, keep the Hawke government informed of uh, those events in uh, February 1986. It seems it doesn't matter whether it's Labor or Liberal and it's been going for decades and decades and it's to do with different um, ideological type of spin on it but basically, it's the Cold War. Go back to that, so in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, um, that China is a, defined as a communist threat. The yellow hordes are coming. We're fighting the war in Vietnam. The Philippines is an ally. doesn't matter that it's a dictatorship that <laughs> it kills its own people. And so it's gone on. It turned into, you know, instead of the Cold War, the war against Islamic terrorism. So, again, we had decades of that, um, but the same basic relationships continue and now back to China, threat to national security and we have to um, following the rhetoric of this government, demonstrate uh, our deterrent capability and you know work closely with our allies to contain the so-called threat from China but um, the way it's going Marcos Jr. has uh, certainly uh, washed his hands of all of the playing around with China which Duterte had done and uh, it's absolutely clear that uh, the US military are getting everything they asked for um, by expanding their military presence in the Philippines with a, an eye to uh, a war over Taiwan. And in, in such a conflict, those bases in the Philippines would definitely be part of the battlefield. Filipino people are really alert to that. And it's causing consternation.
1: And that's what they did in the Vietnam War?
0: Yes, of course. During the Vietnam War, the, the two main bases that the US operated then were Clark Air Base and the Subic Bay Naval Base. They were both huge staging points for bomb, bombing missions and naval missions against the Vietnamese people.
1: Is there a place for the United Nations to counteract what's happening in the Philippines? I know that you go for the ICC and there's different bodies, but other countries get condemned, but nothing seems to matter. Of what's happening in the Philippines for the United Nations to act on the Philippines. Is that because of the influence with the United States?
0: Well, principally it is. But, uh, of course, in the, in the allies of the United States all help out, don't they? So that includes Australia, Canada, Japan especially, South Korea also. So they're all pretty important in these relationships. And uh, all the same, I would say that the US has uh, shifted a bit i don't exactly understand what it is but uh, i'm going to just guess that the democrats around biden include people you know who go back a while do not like the marcos family for i suppose a few different reasons including the fact that the marcos are uh, caught up in uh, court cases in the united states over some of that um, plunder that they've got and not paying taxes not appearing in court, various various offences. So um, there's a limit, I think, to some, some people's uh, patience with them in the administration. But as far as the security, national security stuff goes, I think that uh, doesn't really matter, Biden or Trump. But uh, I, what I see is, for instance, we just had the International Labor Organization send a high-level tripartite mission to the Philippines in January. They made Really important findings that it's really true that up to now, 65 65 trade union leaders have been killed in the Philippines here in the Duterte and and this period of Marcos, and that uh, this has to stop. The counterinsurgency uh, doctrine behind these killings has to be absolutely changed to remove you know trade unionism as uh, as uh, a terrorist activity, and um there has to be rec- you know compensation uh, for all of these cases marcos just just refused to implement them and then he this is an this year is an anniversary year of uh, Philippines joining the international labour organisation and uh Marcos wanted to attend a, the international labour conference just a couple of weeks ago in Geneva to uh, mark this moment um, but because the way his administration had handled the high-level mission philippines remained high on the agenda therefore you know, if he was there he would have to witness criticism you know strong criticism of his government so right at the last minute he cancelled <laughs> he cancelled out and didn't show and uh, caused a bit of chaos in the overall philippine delegation to the conference but uh, The result was he was sort of exposed in a personal way for his uh, attempt to manipulate the ILO and the the very, very serious record of abuses of the freedom of association, um, which were uncovered, you know, were highlighted once again. So I think there'll be consequences for the Philippines in this regard because all of these sort of un global compacts and social agreements and so on involving multinational corporations play into investment profiles in of different countries and investment decisions in the end by major finance operators like Blackrock and those fund managers. so i think I think that Philippines will be being downgraded because of this record which has been established, and we've seen a similar sort of process happened in the human rights council where attempts by the philippine uh, delegation to just deny completely that any of, <laughs> any of these atrocities are, are taking place are just not accepted by most of the countries involved and including the united states so i think we we're, we're seeing a sort of a shift and i you know from the campaigner point of view i think we we have to make the most of all these opportunities that uh, sort of emerge after many, many years of effort. You know, of course, you can maintain and should maintain our overall analysis of the power relations involved and how, you know, locked in the United States is in the end. But I think we've got a bit of space to, um, you know, work in now to, to somehow push back on some of the worst things that are happening to, you know, have some kind of guide rails or limits to the repression that's so blatant and coming back to Australia you know if we can get messaging that turns up in in other similar countries like uh, Canada, US itself, Europe then then we can push the Australian government to to go that far at least if not further.
1: And of course as you've said before Peter the people of the Philippines aren't going to just cow down and accept it they continue the fight.
0: Yes, yes they do. It's um we'll soon see, you know, the situation because uh July 24 is the uh, state of the nation address by Marcos it'll be his first no second one. Um but the you know the first substantive one as president and uh you know there'll be he's already, he's already ordered the uh, closure of the uh, main road outside of the Congress building where the people's sona would would take place. So there'll be some kind of uh, street protests, maybe really volatile situation because of this effort to sort of stop it. But I think the people will will come out and protest. I don't think, uh, I can say this for sure, the trade union movement in the Philippines has never been so united as they are now because of the record of Duterte, first of all, and now uh, because of Marcos continuing what Duterte did. So... um, Yeah, I think we're seeing that, uh, you know, because I I do have my focus on the union picture, but the farmers uh, in the Philippines, it's it's actually worse. So, you know, I said 65 had been killed from the trade union sector um, in this last six and a half years. And the number from the farmers would be like 300 you know, really nasty in the countryside and those communities are also careful in how they come out but they're organised enough, clear enough about the need to struggle that, yeah, it's going to continue. It's going to continue.
1: And maybe disappointing or I don't think that's the right word that the media here in Australia does not acknowledge or very seldom acknowledges what is actually happening in Mm. the Philippines.
0: That's right. That's right. It's actually remarkable how poor it is. But we've got, you know, a continuing decline in the capacity of the Australian media, and uh, especially in their coverage of events in Southeast Asia. You know, there's only a couple of Australian reporters for the entire region. None of them are based in the Philippines, so it's all second and third hand even for them. It's very really rare that someone will go to the Philippines on a mission and and do a story directly as an Australian reporter. But I could not you know, tell you for instance, like we are very upset here about AUKUS and it's, you know, there's a widespread feeling of discontent among the people, let alone organized people, about that um announcement of our government against China. And in the Philippines, you know, they announced four new US bases and two of them uh in northern Luzon oriented towards um Taiwan Strait and you know it's that's really very, very Raising the temperature with China, but in one of the provinces, the governor said that he was just not going to have it. That his place would become a naval base that would be attacked in a war, and that his people would be, um, you know, under threat. So this is like a very conservative politician, really. But he he called for a popular gathering in the streets, a sort of like a candlelight one, to show that the people don't want it do um, want the US base. And there was like thirty thousand people came out. Yeah, that and that was visually strong and everything, but there was not one image broadcast in Australia about that. So yeah, it's it is very disappointing. And of course it makes it harder for um us who campaign on these issues to, you know, get traction with the public in a broad way. But uh, all the same, we've, got the, <laughs> we've certainly got the facts on our side and we can use that to have an impact uh, in the parliament and within the organised trade union movement. And um, churches are also very concerned about their uh, you know, related churches in the Philippines who are under similar attack. So yeah, there's, there's, there's ways for us to continue working. Okay, Jan. Thank you very much.
1: And Peter Murphy is the Chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines.
3: Smith Street Dreaming is a special gathering of dancers and musicians that will honour elders, families and community through traditional ceremony in Fitzroy. Featuring Uncle Herb Patton, Arnie Janice Bakes, Jiri Jiri Dance Group, Morandaya Yapena Dance Troupe, Bandok Tati, The Small Ant Brothers, Uncle Johnny Lovett, Lee Sunnyboy Morgan Show, Empath Soul, and Firestarter Chris Hume. In Atherton Gardens, corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Streets, Fitzroy. Saturday, July 15th from 1 till 5pm. With free barbecue and coffee on site and entry is Free. Smith Street Dreaming is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria, the Smith Street Working Group, Leaps and Bounds Music Festival and Yarra City Council. A 3CR supporter. Wondering how to pay your donations to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us exactly which program you'd like your donations to go towards. CR stay tuned stay radical I
4: want to drop
5: food not-
1: everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in.
6: For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org.
1: Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Today, a focus on Janin, where over the past month, and a yet unknown number of Palestinians have been killed more than 100 injured in attacks on the people of the city and the overcrowded refugee camp. Shops and cars burnt, homes destroyed, roads dug up, people attacked in their homes, health systems destroyed. By Israel using drones, helicopters, up to 2,000 soldiers on the ground with the latest weaponry and the largest military operation in the West Bank for 20 years. Yet another example of what life is like for Palestinians under the brutal Israeli occupation and it seems the world sits back and watches. Amin Abbas is a diaspora Palestinian living in Australia a founder of Olive Kids an Australian foundation dedicated to supporting the children of Palestine. Amin you've recently visited relatives in Janin In May, can you describe the city and the place of the UN refugee camp in the city and explain what it looks like?
4: The city is actually in the north of the West Bank, towards the north of Palestine. Uh, Janine is not a massive city, uh, however, surrounded by a lot of villages and it's kind of a central uh, city for a lot of those cities, like, like villages around it or small cities around it. The camp sits in the heart of the city, actually, towards the uh, northeast side of the city. It's a very small camp. It's about maybe one square kilometre and it's hosting probably about 20,000 people. So yeah, it's definitely a very small, a, in a very, you know, like many other camps in a very uh, difficult condition. Uh, Although parts of it was rebuilt after the 2002 uh, invasion of the camp. But still, it's definitely
1: in a a challenging condition. When was it built and why was it placed where it is? The camp was built after
4: 1948. I think it was built in the early 50s, probably 62, 53 uh, by the UN. Uh, As uh, a lot of the listeners would know that the at 1948, Nakba produced a displacement of about 800,000 Palestinians from their homes in uh, uh, today's Israel. Uh, th- a lot of those refugees settled eventually in camps. Some of those camps were makeshift tents and they uh, turned into uh, shoddy um, dwellings for for these people. So a lot of the people that live in the camp Engineering, in, in particular, the refugee camp in happen happened to be from cities and towns not far at all from Jenin, in Haifa, in Akka, in the north of, of Palestine, uh, or from villages that were totally destroyed and wiped out of the map uh, after Nakba of 1948. So you're talking about people who can see the towns that they come from, but they cannot obviously go to it or go and live to it or return to their homes or the land uh, that they've, they've owned. Uh, Pre 1948.
1: You've got an area one kilometre, 20,000 people. How does that work? Uh,
4: extremely difficult. It's a very good question, Jan. So it's very difficult and very challenging, especially for families that live in very small dwellings and obviously uh, under occupation with uh, frequent incursions. In fact, when I was in Janine in May, it it happened to be one of those mornings where there was actually an incursion attack on the camp. Uh, it wasn't as big of an attack that we've witnessed in the last few days. However, it was a regular run-of-the-mill activity where the army came in the camp. We I was um, actually having an appointment not far from uh, the entrance of the camp, uh, where a lot of the government or well, like the, the Palestinian Authority departments happened to be uh, and the army came in and, and invaded the camp, where it was very difficult for anybody to be around this area. So we had to all evacuate uh, this this area. And um, this is something that is not infrequent; it actually happens all the time, where the army comes in and and basically uh, takes some of the young people, the young activists, uh, activists of the camp. So it's very difficult conditions, obviously for people that live there, not just living in a very difficult, very small, confined areas where they cannot really, like, have, like, the freedom of extending or, like, have proper property to live in. On top of all of that, they're uh, obviously under the whim of the occupier where at any moment they can uh, destroy the streets, destroy their homes, kill, you know, the young people at the camp and live in a very difficult situation.
1: Now, you say the camp was set up after 1948. What role does the UN have
4: now? Uh, There's still some responsibilities of the UN for for the camp. However, as I'm sure you're aware, the PA uh, took a lot of responsibility, you know, after the Oslo Agreement, although uh, these responsibilities were confined to a very administrative role. So, there's still some responsibility for, for the UN, obviously, in the light of like the more recent events. Uh, there's a lot of reports about like you know what's, what are the implications of the destruction, the families that lost their properties and houses. So, the UN still plays a role. However, it is, it is kind of a limited role in light of the, uh, the presence of the PA. But again, uh, the PA's role is extremely limited and confined to what the occupier allows it to do. So, it's in... In no way, as mentioned, that the, there's not some sort of autonomy for the PA uh, in the West Bank. It's actually very limited. It's very superficial. Uh, and in fact, the amount of uh, funding and money that typically gets spent on uh, rebuilding or creating you know, schools or hospitals ultimately is also controlled by the occupier. In fact, taxes that are collected from Palestinians uh, they need to be cleared through the Israeli government before it's given to the PA. So you're talking about an occupier that controls every aspect of life of the Palestinians.
1: Talk about the the town or the city of Jenin. in total. You've got this refugee camp, small refugee camp in the middle. How do the people in the rest of the place exist?
4: Yeah, so, so Jenin is a bigger town, obviously, like any other city under occupation, it's not living a like prosperous life either. So you are talking about you know, a city in the north of the West Bank where over the last 50 years of, of occupation, there's been consistently more challenging conditions and situations for everybody that lives there. And I'll give you one example. The north of West Bank, and particularly in the area of Guinea, where we have very fertile land, it was known for agriculture. Uh, the products that come from Janine were known to be the, you know, the best in the world. I remember like, you know, growing up that the watermelon oxygen was considered the sweetest and the best in the world. Today, there's not much agriculture is happening in that part of the world, sadly, because Israel is actually stealing all the water from Janine. You were talking about land theft and uh, you know building of colonies throughout the West Bank, and this is not an exception in up north, where a lot of the settlers have also been causing havoc in like, for some of the villages around Jenin as well. In fact, uh, one of the villages not far from Jenin is where people cannot do anything even grow in their own land because the settlers would come and and basically burn their crops or destroy them because they feel that they have some sort of religious connection to parts of that land. In fact, one of those properties belongs to my family, where we can't do much with it, because the settlers would not let us do that. And this is not far from the, the city of Jenin, just on the outskirts of the city of Jenin. So yeah, the situation definitely is better than the camp uh, when we're talking about the rest of the city. However, overall, everywhere in, in Palestine in the West Bank, the, the situation is not that great. And actually, as you go up north, the situation gets worse. So we're talking about Indramallah for example, a lot of the uh, money that potentially can go to schools or hospitals or some funding where the PA elite live and exist. And again, like everybody knows uh, about the corruption of the PA, which is protected by the occupier as well. Uh, when you go up north towards Janine and, and the tip of the West Bank, the situation get, gets much, much worse and the funding gets a lot less.
1: Can we talk about the camp again now? Can you envisage what it must look like now after two days of, or more of absolute devastation? What would it look like today?
4: It's horrifying, Cam. Um, so, look, I mean, the camp was, like I said, I actually walked in that camp a month ago, and I felt so sorry for the people that live in that camp. So some of the footage that was coming from the camp and the streets that I have walked in, are definitely horrifying. You're talking about, this, you know, destroyed homes. You're talking about streets that were dug up. So it, it, it's definitely a very difficult situation for especially people who lost their homes and now living in next shelters or, like, schools or veneers. In fact, one of the big hotels in Guinea that I've stayed at uh, opened all uh, the rooms for uh, people at the camp. So obviously, this is the other thing that you see a lot in Palestine is the willingness and the generosity of people to immediately support each other, which is naturally how it's helped us survive all these years. But it's amazing that a lot of people in Janine opened the houses for people at the camp that lost their properties. Like I said, the hotel opened all the rooms for free for everybody. But the situation in the camp is definitely horrifying.
1: A number of people have left, forced out, but many more remain. I'd imagine that there's no power, no water, no sewerage, home destroyed, the roads ripped up, healthcare shot to pieces. Has this happened before, where the great bulldozers are brought in to tear up the roads so that ambulances and other service vehicles can't get through to those who desperately need it?
4: Uh, Absolutely. That's exactly uh, right. By the way, in 2002, like actually big parts of the camp were totally destroyed in a similar scenario. In fact, at the time some of the streets were even narrower, and that was the way the Israeli occupation forces were able to to actually create some, some roads and invade the camp is by destroying all the houses as some of those bulldozers were actually ramming those houses as they were going through. So the situation today is is obviously not any better, uh, given the destruction, and you're absolutely right. A lot of the ambulances could not obviously uh, drive with those roads, given the destruction that took place. In fact, even the hospital, which is not far from the camp, in the uh, in that same area of Jenin, was also like uh, uh, not really spared from the occupation forces. It's actually well reported that a lot of the people that were trying to get treated in the entrance of the hospital were hit by tear gas uh, multiple times. Uh, obviously, making it a lot worse for the not just the people injured, but also the medics that were trying to help them. So it's a, it's a very a horrific situation and it's, you know, unbelievable to believe what the, you know, the soldiers were kind of like willing to do against, like, their fellow human beings. It's it's really unbelievable.
1: In the situation you have described, how can the power, water, sewerage be repaired?
5: Uh, look, it will take a long
4: time. Uh, Palestinians are known to be resilient and, like I said, helping each other. It will be a difficult situation and, a, and a, a really challenging one. Like the good news is, it's not the whole of the camp that was destroyed, or not even like as uh, uh, devastating as the situation that took place in 2002. Uh, however, it is still like a serious destruction to the camp. Actually, it's a serious destruction throughout Janine. In fact, speaking to some of my relatives, they were telling me that uh, lots of buildings have uh, like they've, they've had a lot of shattered glass and. And a lot of the roads, you know, were suffering from destruction, given, obviously, the heavy artillery and the tanks that were roaming through the whole of Jimmy, not just the camp. Apparently, there was, like, a lot of, like, burnt houses, even outside the camp. So we're talking about destruction throughout the city. And, yeah, it will take a very long time, given, like, you know, obviously, how long it will take for some of these funds to translate into reconstruction, let alone in uh, places where that construction itself was was not great, great in the first place. So, yeah, definitely the families that live at the camp will will have another phase of suffering, sadly. However, I trust that the Palestinian uh, resilience and support for each other will help, you know, a lot of those families overcome this difficult period.
1: Did your family talk about the terror they feel, even though they weren't actually in the refugee camp, they were close by the the drones, the helicopters, the bombs dropping, the sirens blasting, and the long-term psychological impacts, never knowing when it will stop, when it will start again. And I imagine it's something they've experienced again and again.
4: Yeah, they they actually have been told that it's going to happen again. In fact, the Israeli government and the prime minister said, we're going to do that again. So Benjamin Netanyahu is known to... To do exactly that and and threat and, Jenin, like is considered the capital of the resistance, and in his mind it's the capital of terror. So the fact that uh, you know you know Israel occupies, oppresses, steals land, builds Jewish colonies, uh, restricts you know movement of people, impedes education and employment, steals water, you know kills our agriculture, like I told you. means nothing to them, and and they will be, you know, they typically get surprised when people resist all of that happening, and they call it terror, which is obviously ridiculous. So uh, the fact is all that is happening is to be expected. But in answer to your question, yes, uh, it was terrorising for a lot of people of the city, not just the camp. The camp was obviously getting the front of of that uh, uh, terror. It was sadly um, impacting a lot of the children, actually nearly half of the residents of that camp are probably children under 15 years old. So you're talking about post-traumatic stress with, um, you know, the, the situation is very likely to be the product of that for for years to come with a lot of the children. So it's very typical and it's very expected. So we know about a lot of that from the situation in Gaza where the same thing happens all the time. It, it, you know, now obviously Janine is targeted and, you know, they've, Israeli government is using exactly the same policies to terrorise people in the same way that they've been doing this over, uh, you know, the last few years in Gaza.
1: Talk about the UN for a while. The Secretary-General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, was reported as saying that the body has denounced the excessive use of force by Israel in its largest military operation, and that's the largest in two decades on the refugee camp in the West Bank. Israel is the occupying force. The UN should not just be condemning the latest massacre, but the illegal occupation, but that doesn't happen.
4: Yeah, John, over the last 70 days, we've, we've listened to a lot of condemnation with no action. Israel has been doing this over and over again, engineering in Gaza, in many other places, with no consequences. So when an occupying power that has, you know, you name it, tanks and airplanes and drones and nuclear weapons occupies people that have none of that, an ongoing basis, and all what the UN can, can do is just condemn that occupying power, that occupying power will, you know, face no consequences and continue to do exactly that. Like if you contrast that to what's happening in Ukraine, where an occupying power is getting everybody in the West to face into it, give weapons to the Ukrainians to defend themselves, to boycott, like, you know, Russia, to do every action possible. And obviously the UN acting on on the occupation of Ukraine. And if you contrast that to... A powerless people, and actually, Ukrainians, at least they have an army, they have a government, they have, like, no, obviously a way of defending themselves. When it comes to Palestinians who are stateless, who are, you know, without an army, and, you know, all what the UN does is is ongoing condemnation. Uh, Or Western governments, for for that matter, including our own, where all what they can say, or, like, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the US government saying Israel has a right to defend itself. And I wonder, when will it ever? be uh, uttered by anybody any politician in the west that the palestinians have the right to defend themselves let alone like they're defenseless people right but even like staying that saying something along these lines is, is has never been uttered by anybody any politician in the west but that's the sad reality is more and more condemnation no uh, implications or consequences and and this is where israel will continue to do exactly that and this is what they promised to do
1: when you were talking to your family when you were there in may Did they talk about how they feel that the world has forgotten them?
4: This is the interesting thing, Jan. So when you go to Palestine, you probably, we feel here really powerless in healthy environment. We feel like really depressed with what's happening. The interesting thing, when you you go to Palestine, it's actually uplifting. I feel that the spirits of Palestinians is just incredible. It's it's just uh, amazing. So we go there, like, honestly, and it's not just me, and I say we, because it's not just me, other people that have been there have the same, um, you know, reflection, that typically you go there and you feel truly that the people are really resilient, they believe that time is on the side, you know, no matter what happens, they're still in in their, you know, in their homeland, Uh, some of them obviously are refugees, but a lot of you know, them still feel that we're not going to go anywhere else outside here. So this is the interesting thing is they don't feel as depressed as, as some of us in spite of the loss of life, in spite of all the destruction, despite some of them not having like a lot of like even a future prospects, whether it's like a career or education, they still feel very resilient and very content with living on the land, which is which is really amazing. So I'm not sure if if this is the answer you expected, but this is in reality how Palestinians feel, is that they they need for survival. This is how they need to feel. They need to be thankful for being where they are and and continue to be resilient and help each other out.
1: And I'm sure that they're aware that grassroots people in many countries are working tirelessly to change the situation so that there is a, a free Palestine.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they know that the world is with them. Maybe not the government, certainly not the governments of the West. Uh, in fact, a lot of governments, 100, 139 countries, uh, recognize Palestine, just as an example. So it, it, even like, you know, when you talk about in the balance of countries and governments, a lot of countries support Palestine, but you're absolutely right. When it comes to people, we know that the overwhelming majority know the facts, know the reality, and they're definitely on side. Final words? Uh, look, I mean, this is such a, a beautiful way of finishing the fact that we're, you know, we know we're going to persevere. Look, our story is is not going to end tomorrow, but we're very positive that, you know, the future is going to be positive for, for us, for Palestinians. And I really appreciate and thank you for uh, listening to me and for the listeners to listening to, uh, you know, our stories and reality on the ground.
1: And I hope to speak with Aminabas